welcome to season two, episode six of Who Cares What's the Point, the podcast about the mind for people who think. My name is Saab Johal, I'm your host and producer of the show, and this week, Dr. Sarah Gaither is joining me. Now, Dr. Gaither is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University, and her particular interest uh, for this paper is multiracial identity. Now, around about one in 10 of us in New Zealand and in Britain uh, and in the US identify with more than one racial group. Um, That's in the latest census figures over the last decade or so. And we know that multiracial individuals report that the social pressure of having to choose one of their racial groups is a primary source of psychological conflict. But we also know that there are some advantages of multiracial identity. Join me as I talk with Sarah about some of those identities and challenges for those individuals. Hi, Sarah. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Um, I thought I would start with asking you a little bit about um, how you got interested in this area of research from your point of view. Yeah, so I'm biracial myself, and I think I'm a pretty prime example of people who do what we call me-search in academia. Growing up biracial and mixed race, I had a very fluid sense of what race and racial group membership really meant. So half my toys were white, half my toys were black. I have a black father and a white mother. And I think growing up in a mixed race household really made me see race in ways differently than my childhood peers did. So it was really my interactions with them growing up that forced me to realize that I had a different sense of what racial group membership was. So over time, I've really tried focusing my research a lot on What are the certain contexts and situations that we've had either as a child or our current context we're in as adults? How does that impact the behaviors and expectations that we have when we meet someone new from across a racial group boundary line in particular? Uh, And we live in societies now that um, are very fluid and mixed in terms of people's um, objective view of where people are coming from in terms of their ethnic or racial origin, but also their own internal identity and identification with particular ethnic groups or racial groupings as well. Yeah, I'm mean, right now, particularly in the United States, the biracial demographic or mixed race demographic is one of the fastest growing racial groups um, in history right now. And yet research as a whole has often ignored them as a racial category, mainly because when we recruit someone who's mixed race, We don't know to count them as a white person or a black person or an Asian person if they have parents from multiple racial or ethnic backgrounds. So I think it's an exciting time to be studying this, but also kind of an outdated question at the same time and that we've been a very mixed race world for a very long time. And yet research to date has really focused on the singular aspect of identity. So we can only be one thing at one time. It's very easy for us to think about being a woman, but being a woman professor, for example, this dual identity is not as commonly thought of. And so my work, I'm really trying to push this discussion a new angle and that we all have multiple identities and multiple group memberships. And I use the biracial experience as one avenue to sort of highlight this notion and direction that I think research needs to go. Yeah. Um, and we hear a lot of talk about this concept of intersectionality. And one of the things that I think that you're highlighting here in your paper is that actually one of the uh, primary sources of discomfort and, com- and psychological conflict for people is when they are forced to choose um, one of their racial groups as an identity rather than perhaps um, being accepted or having a um, self-identifying as, as having multiple identities. 
Right. Yeah. And this forced choice is what actually has been shown in a lot of mixed race research and even some bicultural research, too, that makes people feel very negatively about themselves. Right. No one wants to be put into a box that they don't identify with. And yet our society is really forcing us to only put ourselves into one box at a time. So we only think about race. We don't think about the intersections with race and gender or race and class or race and income, for example. Um, our forms just aren't made that way. For example, um, recently in the job market, I was asked to actually rank my two racial backgrounds, being white and black, on which one was number one and which one was number two. And so you can imagine for someone who identifies equally with both of these identities, how could you actually be forced on a job application to rank one of your identities over the other. So I will leave that school unnamed, but there are still things happening even a year ago, at least in the United States, that are still asking us to rate our different racial identities for those of us who do fall into a multiracial identified background. You see, I'm quite shocked when you, when you tell me that, that, that that's still going on. And of course, I, I come across it too, where um, people are forcing you to rank or choose sides or somehow prioritize one of your identities. Um, and I think that um, uh, you've identified that as one of the major obstacles for people who identify with having a multiracial background and identity. Yeah, it, the multiracial group is actually showing higher rates of social exclusion and discrimination than any other racial or ethnic group around the world right now, actually. They're never white enough, black enough, Asian enough, Latino enough, whatever their ethnicity or racial backgrounds may be, they really can't seem to find a home within one of those racial or ethnic groups. Um, and what makes this even more complicated to study as a researcher is the biracial demographic as a whole also isn't a unified group. Not all biracial people necessarily see each other as one giant racial group either. And someone who's half black versus someone who's half Asian, they're likely going to have very different life experiences compared to an entire group of black individuals, for example. So it makes it, for me as a researcher, both exciting, but also difficult to capture that variability that really exists within the multiracial demographic. And of course, you've got um, things like income and social class and opportunities that may be available to people who come from perhaps those uh, backgrounds of racial um, um, ide identities and groups that um, don't uh, traditionally um, get those opportunities and have had obstacles put in their way through legislation or through uh, um, other ways of, uh, of limiting their opportunities. Right. And that's entirely true. And it's not just necessarily even income or access differences, but oftentimes it's what we call phenotypicality in social psychology research. So how minority you might look if you look more black versus more Asian or if you can pass as white, that's also going to create additional opportunities for yourself depending on what type of mixed race you are and how you look. So not only does that impact whether you're included or excluded from racial and ethnic groups, but it also can impact the types of job opportunities or romantic relationships, right? Um, that we know people in our society tend to value lighter skin colors right across the world. There's this huge skin tone bias. And so there's that kind of difference that also is difficult to capture in biracial research, but a needed direction, I think, um, that research needs to be going. Mm. And I think one of the things that you talk about is these um, dehumanizing questions that can come from people who are living with these categories in which they are trying to put people in boxes and they ask questions like, well, what are you? And I know I've experienced that myself, even though I have um, a Punjabi Indian origin, I live in an area where perhaps it's not 
um, particularly common to see people uh, like me, particularly because I, I have um, no hair, and a lot of Sikh uh, people, including my father, when when he, um, uh, when he could, he he had uncut hair. So people do bring their own. Um, search for meaning which then kind of really tramples over these um people who have multiracial identities their own uh self-view yeah yeah i mean this what are you question where are you from this exotic kind of focus that the multiracial demographic and i would argue even people like yourself right people who are monoracial or monoethnic if you look racially ambiguous or you look hard to determine what racial group you may or may not belong to, that ambiguity causes confusion in people. We have this capacity and this innate built-in tendency to want to know what groups people belong to. And so not only is this question, what are you, sort of perceived as being really insulting sometimes to mixed race or racially ambiguous individuals because it is questioning your sense of self, right? This is another person questioning who you are and what you are. But it's also a reminder that we really have this innate tendency to not want to think too hard about what groups people belong to. And so the biracial demographic, I think, is a really clear example that when we put multiple groups on a table for someone to think about, it's really quite difficult for them to understand, well, are you white or are you black? You can't really be both. And that's the types of discussions and questioning a person's identity that has been shown in a lot of biracial research to lead to higher mental health issues, for example, um, higher substance abuse issues. Because when you're constantly questioned who you are on a daily or weekly basis, over time that really takes a toll on you emotionally. Mm. Uh, m- and maybe we can come back to to that a little while when we talk about um, uh, what what the implications of this might be. But I just want to switch our focus um, a little bit now to, um, as well as thinking about the obstacles, uh, one of the things that you um, talk about in your paper is the advantages, actually, for people who uh, self-identify as multiracial. Um, perhaps we can talk about that a little bit. What are the sorts of advantages that are conferred to, to people with this identity? And so a big thing I focus on in this paper and in my work in general is this question of identity flexibility and perspective taking abilities for multiracial people. So one thing I've shown a lot in my own research is if you get a biracial person to think about one of their racial identities over the other, so think about being black, for example, over being white, you can actually shift your focus and shift your behavioral tendencies to allow you to navigate diverse settings more easily. You can turn off and on these different identities which can help you talk to people from diverse groups in a much more easier way compared to people who don't have this constant exposure to people from different racial or ethnic backgrounds. I've also shown that the same identity flexibility can impact creativity and flexible thinking for multiracial individuals. So reminding them that they have this flexible racial identity shows transfer effects into problem-solving abilities too. It's this extended association of thinking flexibly about oneself that then shows that they can think flexibly when solving different types of problems. Um, to be fair, I've recently also demonstrated the same thing occurs for monoracial people, so people just from one racial background. If you simply remind them that they have multiple identities, you also find boosts in flexible thinking. So we all have this ability, but I think certain populations across the world might actually have different pathways to access that flexible thinking. So that's a big focus in my own work right now. That's very interesting. The idea that actually by priming an awareness of multiple identities that we may hold, 
one of them actually being quite obvious, different racial uh, identities that we may hold through our, um, our heritage or our upbringing or who it is that we were brought up by, then we are able to access this flexibility much more easily. Right, right. So this kind of learned experience. And so I pull a lot from bicultural research and bilingual research, which a lot of this cites that this experience of code switching between languages or code switching between cultures and beliefs and practices. This experience of flexibility can show really strong transfer effects into how we think about social categories, how we approach problem solving, which is why I think it's really key for us to be using these groups who have these kind of dual group memberships as a way for us to inform how it is identities function more broadly for anyone, regardless of what their backgrounds may be. So you can almost consider them like navigators. They're the people who um, know the waters. They know the terrain of, of all these identities. And when you prime them and remind them around the terrain that they're navigating right now, then suddenly they're able to, to navigate not just that terrain, but also other terrains too. Exactly, exactly. I think that's a really good analogy. If they've had practice with these things, sometimes you might have to remind them about that experience. And I think that's for anyone from any background, but for biracial people in particular, when they're growing up in these very diverse households with different types of family influences, it's very easy for them to pull from those experiences because they have a lot more immediate practice, right? Um, so for bilingual individuals, they argue the more proficient you are in both of your languages, for example, the more creative you might be on certain types of tasks. So again, it's this practice effect, this proficiency effect in navigating between your identities or among your identities that I'm really trying to argue in my work could be a benefit for anyone, yet I don't think we really understand how naturally this can occur yet as well. So as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, when you're talking about bilingual um, people, I'm also thinking about people who perhaps are immigrants into a new culture, particularly children of immigrants, where they're perhaps being brought up in a household that is perhaps sticking or has traditional values of the of the culture of origin, as well as um, exposure to the new culture that they find themselves in. Children who grow up in these environments, I wonder whether they have this um, access to this identity flexibility through through sheer need you know they actually have to do this yeah i think i i pull a lot from bicultural experience particularly for children i think they're a really interesting case where oftentimes if their parents don't speak whatever the native language may be of that new country the children often become the translators for those families as well right so they're literally living a dual identity where they speak with one language with the rest of the country, but they speak with their home native language with their parents. And so I do think this bilingual, bicultural, biracial experiences are all unified through the same process and that it's this perspective taking, code switching kind of experience when balancing a person's need to belong in both of those cultures or both of those racial backgrounds at the same time. No one wants to deny an identity that they have. So uh, an immigrant child wouldn't want to ever deny their parents backgrounds or their home country's backgrounds. But at the same time, they also know that they have to adopt this new cultural identity from this new country that they've moved to, right? So it's balancing between their home country versus this new country and trying to navigate between these two new worlds to find whatever pathways are going to lead to their success, whether that's in school or at home or in a new um, job. Mm. So as you're talking again, a couple of ideas coming to my mind. I'm wondering if I've tried to articulate them. One of them is around the idea of dissonance. So the idea that perhaps uh, people who have multiracial identities where 
um, one identity is perhaps valued more by the um, culture in which they find themselves surrounded by and living in. Um, do they um, go through experiences where they perhaps um, do try to deny a part of their identity for fear of not fitting in and not conforming? And then what kind of dissonance does that produce for those individuals and the families in which they live? Yeah, so this was something else I highlighted a lot in this review paper and that on average, research would argue that for multiracial people at least, those who identify with both of their backgrounds or all of their backgrounds, they view them as this integrated kind of experience. They tend to have more positive outcomes because they're not having any negative exclusion. They're not denying any part of themselves. That said, there are a lot of biracial people who really do choose to deny one of their racial or ethnic backgrounds. And that happens for a variety of reasons. It could be access to certain resources. It could be based on how they physically look and they don't feel they can claim one of those backgrounds. It could be the neighborhood that they live in that has different types of stigma against one of those groups versus the other. Um, and the other reason we see some variability in identification is some multiracial people are just so sick of talking about racial group memberships and racial categories that they just deny all their identities and identify as a human being. Mm. And so you find that over time, people can get so tired of these discussions because race is a social construction in the first place, right? Why do we have to care so much about what racial boxes we're putting people into in the first place? And so you actually find there's a lot of variability just in the labels that the multiracial demographic chooses. And I think that's actually one big limitation to the work that I've done so far. It's most of the work I've published has really reflected experiences for strongly self-identified biracial individuals. So people who are responding to ads where I say, hey, are you biracial? Come do a study. I don't think my work necessarily captures the identity experiences for biracial individuals who maybe only identify with one of their racial backgrounds. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that really hasn't been studied in addition to what we call dual minority biracial individuals. So people who are black Asian or black Latino for example, if you aren't half white or aren't half majority status, whatever that may be in your respective country, what types of different experiences might you have if you can't claim that majority high power, high status group in society? And that's a new direction I'm trying to push my work in because that's a group that I think has been completely forgotten in a lot of the discussions about um, biracial and bicultural experiences. Mm, mm. I, I agree with you. I think that they are pretty invisible, uh, and actually trying to trying to understand their experiences is, is an, would be an important step forward. Um, I'm also, um, as you're talking, I'm um, I have this uh, concept of authenticity that that's coming to mind, um, and I wonder about the experience of um, identity flexibility. I can see that that would be really uh, positive in some. And in lots of cases, particularly when it is associated with these, this creativity that seems to come with that as well and being able to walk in several different worlds. But I also wonder about this idea of perhaps people wondering who they are um, and experiencing almost like um, I, I seem to be many different selves. But um, I, I guess it speaks to this idea of integration that you've been talking about as well. Do we know much about um, that process of coming to terms with um, a multiracial identity? So we don't know a lot about it. There's been very few longitudinal studies looking at the development of these identities. What we do know is that across the lifespan, a multiracial person in particular tends to change drastically how they identify. 
So maybe as a child, they only identify as being white, but by the time they come to college, which is a really important identity development period, there they join a mixed race student group or they join a black student group and all of a sudden they're black, right? So there's different contexts and situations that can impact the development of singular identities or an integration of their multiple racial identities. And we really don't know very much about those things. What we do know is that for people who do experience more exclusion or more conflict between their identities, so if you're forced to choose one of your identities more than the other, you're forced to deny one of your identities for whatever those reasons may be, those are the people who end up reporting lower levels of self-esteem, um, and they tend to be reporting things like identity crises, right? So you have an identity crisis about who you are if you're constantly questioning what your racial background is or what it's allowed to be based on your context. And so it's, those are the, some of the negative outcomes stemming from a mixed race identity is constantly questioning, well, can I be white here or can I be Asian here? Who's really in charge of dictating these racial group boundaries? And it's that struggle in choosing one identity over the other that really ends up negatively impacting a lot of people in this demographic. One of the other things I think that you mentioned that we don't know much about is that we have an assumption here, perhaps, that the this experience of multiracial identity is the same for men and women. Uh, and we don't know much about the gender differences here. Right. Yeah, we really have done very little intersectionality work looking at biraciality or multiraciality for men versus women. We know from some other research that race is a very gendered concept, though, particularly in the United States. If I were to ask the average person to think of a black individual, they would think of a black man, not a black woman. And if I ask the same person in the United States to think about um an Asian person, they would naturally think of an Asian female and not an Asian male. Same thing for white person. That's a white man, not a white female. And so we have these accepted associations between race and gender, which I think should directly impact the experiences that a biracial person would have, whether they're male or female, and whether they're what we call congruent with these kinds of gender and race expectations um, for the different stereotypes we have. And I guess that that also would be affected by their, as you say, phenotypicality, uh, as do they have features associated with being a black man if they are a black man or if they're a black woman? Um, you know, how, how does that map on to what a, an archetypal woman should look like in, the, in that particular culture? Right, right. Yeah. And there are certain features we associate with certain racial and ethnic groups, too, that oftentimes are, again, linked to gender. Um, so skin tone, we often accept people within the black or African-American demographic to be darker in skin tone. But on average, black women tend to be a little lighter in skin tone, right? So these other skin tone factors that can also equate to certain stereotypes learned in our various societies that intersect with race and gender. And I think we've only begun to scratch the surface on those things for the multiracial demographic. You know, as when I came across your work, Sarah, I was really struck by how little we knew really about this, and, and I was struck by the 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 need to know more, given that this is a growing proportion of our populations in, in the countries in which we live, particularly where psychology is studied in depth. Um, so, who, who do you think should care about this? What, what what's the point of this research? Where where do you see it being used? Um, I think everyone should care about it. Obviously, that's very 
self-obsessive with myself, right, as a biracial person. But I think this is not only a chance to study group membership and identity from an entirely new angle, and we all have identities and group memberships. This is a really rare opportunity for us to see how malleable group memberships are, how meaningful they are. We can push our discussions about the meanings of race and ethnicity in new directions by having these discussions surrounding what it means to even be a member of these different racial and ethnic groups in the first place. I think from a health standpoint, the fact that my behavioral research is already showing very tangible differences for biracial versus monoracial individuals. So we see learning preference differences for young children, for example. We see face perception differences for biracial versus monoracial adults. You see these very clear behavioral differences between biracials and monoracials it just makes me assume there must be other educational differences and health differences that we don't know about yet. There are a lot of health disparities um, based on race and ethnic background, and yet I've been a participant in some recent studies, and they didn't know how to categorize my data. They simply said, well, I need to know if your bones are white people bones or black people bones. I don't know where to put your data for an osteoporosis study for women. And so the fact that I've been asked that within the past few years really was very telling to me that we have no idea even what the health outcomes are for these populations. So I'm not a medical researcher in any way, but I think if I'm already showing behavioral differences, that means there's probably other differences between biracial and monoracial identified individuals um, across our societies as well. Because the assumption is that actually they're just like everybody else. But what you're saying here is that actually it is an assumption. I think it is a, a huge assumption. I have been recently involved with some mixed race bone marrow campaigns. And what we know, at least from a bone marrow matching perspective, is that if you are a mixed race person, it is extremely difficult. You pretty much have the lowest chance of finding a good enough match for a bone marrow match in medical research. And this is something that's just been discovered recently recently. And yet we've had mixed race and mixed heritage people existing for centuries. And now we're only learning that our genetic makeup is much harder to match from a medical standpoint. And so there's a huge push right now in trying to get more racial and ethnic minorities registered in bone marrow research, um, in particular mixed race individuals, because um, we know that they actually aren't going to have the same options for those types of treatments alone. And that's just one of the few medical differences that I know of right now. Mm-hmm. So where next for you, Sarah? What, what are you working on in, in this research line at the moment and in the future? Um, right now, I'm actually trying to use this rising group as a way to study how stereotypes even form in the first place. So right now, if I were to ask you, what's the stereotype of a biracial person? People have given me really mixed responses. Um, the, the typical response tends to be, oh, they're attractive, they're beautiful, they're exotic. But that's pretty much the only stereotypes that people have told me so far today. So I'm really interested in using this growing group that people are talking about in media, we're seeing on television, um, this rising demographic to see how much contact is needed with people of different biracial backgrounds before stereotypes are actually formed. So how does this actually happen in our society? So I'm really interested in trying to use this as a, a novel opportunity to see do we have an additive effect, right? If you're a biracial black, white person, are you only going to have black stereotypes or will you have a combination of black and white stereotypes, for example? Um, so that's something I'm really interested in doing right now. And I'm also interested in this question of racial ambiguity for mixed race individuals. So if you're interacting with someone and you can't tell what race they are, how does that impact your behavior with them in an actual social setting? And if I disclose my racial identity to you, 
how does that change your behavior as someone interacting with me, right? Um, so I'm very interested in the social behavioral consequences from when a biracial person chooses to disclose that identity. How does that change people's behaviors or even things um, such as jail sentence time or job hiring or romantic partner selection? How does just this simple racial label switch for a racially mixed person impact these types of downstream consequences? So that's a, a few different directions where we're trying to go in the lab right now. That's fantastic, Sarah. It sounds like really exciting work that you're interested in. And there's a lot to be done here, given that we don't really understand how people uh, come to these judgments. Absolutely, as you say. Yes, hopefully it's good job security for me in lots of ways. Um, I think the, uh, the other thing I'm really interested in, I guess, to get back to some of your previous points, is this continued comparison between bicultural and biracial individuals. So both of them have their identities denied in different ways. You're denied your American identity, for example, if you're considered an immigrant. Um, but is that the same type of identity denial experience as someone who has their racial identity denied? And so that's another current project we're doing right now at Duke and trying to look at the health outcomes. So the stress-related outcomes through cortisol, actually, we're collecting saliva from these participants to see how these identity experiences are either similar for bicultural versus biracial populations or distinct from each other. I mean, I think it's those types of discussions we need to be having to really understand the role identity denial and social exclusion plays for different types of groups. Um, do you have any other points that you wanted to put across that we haven't covered? Um, no, nope, just my general public service announcement and telling any researcher out there to start including more boxes on your respective forms. I think there's a lot of exciting new directions we can take our work and it's time for us to get past this singular way of thinking about our group membership. Thanks for joining me for this week's show. I hope you found it interesting and enlightening. Um, my name is Saab Johal. You can follow me on Twitter at Saab, S-A-R-B, or the show at WCWTP. Uh, you can see the rest of the shows that we have online if you come to whocareswhatsthepoint.com or if you follow the links in the show notes here today. And you can also email me, contact at whocareswhatsthepoint.com. Thanks very much for joining me. Please join us again next week for...